Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rhodes? Well, we're going, we don't need Rhodes. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. No, I am your father. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello, and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. Phil, how are things treating you on this lovely day? Well, it is a lovely day. It's been so warm. And here we are on our 51st episode. We've broken the back of this uh, journey into film. And we're now, you know, we're heading off into uncharted territory. That's right. That's right. It's very exciting stuff. All right, Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners what they can look forward to enjoying in this episode. We will be going after the endings of 1991's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and 1995's Showgirls. So we've gone from Aliens vs. Predator to Showgirls. Hey, <laughs> it's not often you can do that, but uh, we no, are. No, it's not. <laughs> and we'll be looking at our top 10 favorite films of 2002. Yes, a jam-packed episode for sure. we got Kevin Costner, we got Naked Women, and we've got the movies of 2002. What more can you ask for? Well, apparently Showgirls has become sort of a cult classic, so there you go. Yeah, they show it in theaters like they do with Rocky Horror Picture Show, and people come and, and like, you know, quote the lines along with it and laugh out loud and have fun yeah. with it. So it sounds like that could be fun. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just spoil a little bit of the trivia I had because it did actually make $100 million from video rentals. Yeah, which is pretty insane, actually. That's, and I, that's and really And it, it became one of MGM's top 20 all-time bestsellers. And MGM has a pretty deep catalog, too, so <laughs> yeah. that tells you it's, something. Yeah. Well, yes, but that's Showgirls, then. Should we crack on with that first? Yeah, I'll jump into things. I'm going to keep this fairly simple because it's a movie with way more plot than it needs, so... We'll, uh, we'll just. Oh, I love that. That's good. Yeah, very yeah, true. We'll just. Skip that that right should be on a post. Yeah. The next re-release when it gets another Blu-ray release said a film with way more plot than it needs. Exactly. Oh, like yeah. <laughs> so, Showgirls, uh, 1995, directed by Paul Verhoeven, written by Joe Esterhaus, who also brought us Basic Instinct, uh, starring Elizabeth Berkley, Gina Gershon, and Kyle MacLachlan. And the story goes that Nomi Malone, played by Elizabeth Berkley, is a drifter who ends up in Las Vegas. She makes friends with a girl named Molly, and she meets Crystal Connors, played by Gina Gershon, the diva star of a topless review. Crystal and Nomi get into sort of a love-hate relationship, and eventually Nomi pushes Crystal down the stairs, and Crystal breaks her hip, thereby leading to Nomi replacing her as the star of said topless review. Nomi and Molly get into a fight, but Molly relents and comes to Nomi's opening night. There, Molly meets music star Andrew Carver, who beats her up and sexually assaults her. Meanwhile, Crystal's boyfriend, Zach, played by Kyle MacLachlan, blackmails Nomi to keep her quiet about the assault. So, Nomi gets Carver alone and beats him to a pulp as retaliation for what he did to Molly. Then she reconciles with Molly and with Crystal. Then, Nomi hitches a ride out of Las Vegas with a sign showing the distance to Los Angeles on the road in front of her. And that is Showgirls. That that's, makes it sound like a pretty good film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And it's not. It really isn't. <laughs> Um, it, it you know I wish I could say that it was one of those movies that has like, some kind of redeeming value, but I think other than being the sort of midnight theater fodder, uh, yeah. I, I just I don't. Yeah, get it. I remember watching it and just got I just thinking what, what? <laughs> and uh, the bit in the swimming pool, the the love scene or the sex yeah, scene in the swimming pool. Oh that. my god! Yeah, 
I um, it's funny because I went to see it in theaters on opening night uh, because I was just old enough to do that. You know, I was just at that age where I could get oh, in. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm going to go see it, and it was all exciting because it was a big R-rated movie, and it was the guy who made Basic Instinct, and you know, it's going to be all saucy. And I remember <laughs> a whole bunch of us went to it, and and it was just like you know, it was like the air deflating out of a balloon. Like we were all hyped up and excited, and then as the movie just went on, we all just sort of slumped into our seats, like, oh, uh, what have we gotten ourselves into? And by the end, you just wanted the night to be over. <laughs> Yeah, maybe that was Paul Verhoeven's idea. He said, right, all those uh, kids who are finally going to be old enough to see this kind of film, let's show them it's not that hard. Yeah, let's dash their dreams. (laughs) You know, when you can have like two hours of like naked women on a 30-foot screen and you get bored to tears, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole other range of after the endings for that, though. (laughs) Yeah, we'll leave that alone for now. Anyway, moving on. All right, yes. so Phil, why don't you go ahead and give us your day after? Okay, Nomi is Nomi's now driving the car that she was picked up in. She ditched the driver shortly after leaving Las Vegas. She managed to not hurt him too much. Finally, she arrives in LA and with a new outlook on life. She's not going to be pushed around anymore and will not stand by while others suffer. However, she needs money. So she ends up getting a job working in a bar called Mike's Place in a seedy part of LA. The patrons of the bar quickly learn not to mess with Nomi and the bar owner Mike is pleased with his new employee. The bar is frequented by working girls, rent boys, and others looking for clients. It's a bit of a dive, but uh, everybody looks out for everybody else in this place. And Nomi listens to the tales and becomes friends with some of them. One morning, while getting the bar ready, Marnie, one of Nomi's new friends, turns up. She's bloody and battered. Seeing Nomi, Marnie breaks down into tears. Who did this? asks Nomi. And that's the day after. Hmm, interesting. Well, I'm going to say there's a, a few minor similarities between our two so far, but they I think they go off in different directions. Okay, hit me with it. Okay. Cue the music. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Nomi stops at a pawn shop and sells off a bunch of jewelry that she had gotten from men in Las Vegas who tried to buy her love. With a few thousand bucks in her pocket, she sets out for Los Angeles and decides to try her hand at acting. She rents a fleabag motel room for a few weeks and gets a job as a waitress right near Warner Brothers Studios. After a few weeks, she starts to get to know several of the Warner employees who frequent her restaurant for lunch. One in particular, a young man named Kyle, catches her eye, and she begins flirting with him. Eventually, he works up the courage to ask her out, and she agrees to go on a date with him. And that's my day after. It's pretty simple Mm. so far. Okay, Kyle. Doesn't get that much more uh doesn't get that much more complicated actually. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, now that you say that I realize that's Kyle like Kyle McLaughlin, but that I didn't even think of that when I Oh, okay, I just, no problem. I just like okay. the name Kyle. Thought, yeah. thought it would be a good one. So. It's a good name. All right, well, how about your immediate aftermath then? Okay. A few days later, Marnie comes into the bar and thanks Nomi. "What was that about?" asks Mike. "I just helped to solve a problem," replies Nomi. She thinks back to how easy it was to trick the man who hurt Marnie. A barely there dress and a few tricks she learned in Las Vegas and he was putty in her hands. She was fascinated how his lips split when she threw the first punch. By the time she had finished with him, he'd never harm Marnie or others again. That's my immediate aftermath. Ooh, little little dark there. Mm. <laughs> dark, but, you know, dark for a reason. Well, no, right. I mean, the good motivation for it. I just, you know, yeah. I think the, uh, definitely, I'm, I'm just wondering, does she uh, become a serial killer or, <laughs> you know, or just a vigilante? So we'll see what happens. Yeah, wait and see. So what have you got for your immediate aftermath? Well, Nomi and Kyle have a terrific first date and become a couple. It's rocky road at first because Kyle is a really nice guy and he's head over heels in love with Nomi. However, she's never had a guy treat her like a real person before, so she doesn't know quite how to handle it. She's often moody with him and picks fights with him for no reason. 
But no matter what, Kyle sticks with her. Eventually, he gets her a few auditions and she lands an agent, but she repeatedly tries out for roles and doesn't get them, garnering some rather harsh feedback on her poor acting skills along the way. Upset about her inability to act, she turns to drugs, driving a wedge between her and Kyle. And that's where we'll leave it for now. Oh, no. Why, why <laughs> go to the drugs? I know. It's terrible. Drugs are never the answer, kids. No. Unless it's like a clue and a crossword. You know, right. That's, that's the answer, yeah. <laughs> right, or on Jeopardy or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, then it's okay. Yeah. What will ruin your life if you take too much of them? <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, how about you go ahead and bring us home with your long term? Okay. Word spreads, and although they never come straight out with their problems, lost souls, battered people, and more, know that if they arrive at Mike's place and talk to the tall blonde barmaid, those that did them harm will pay. Nomi knows that what she's doing isn't the most sane thing to do, but she finds helping others satisfying and does admit that she finds pleasure in hurting those who've hurt others. She's always amazed at how men and women underestimate her. Months have passed and Nomi hadn't seen Marnie for a while. She's beginning to worry until Marnie shows up looking fit and healthy. I want to help, says Marnie. I want to do what you do. And that's mm. my showgirls. I like it. So it really becomes, I like the, like the plural of showgirls becomes the ending of your ending where the two of them start to become these avenging angels, if you will. Yeah, and it's sort of, it just tied in with the fact she did beat the guy up really badly. And I just thought, yeah, she's, she's gone through the ringer on this one. So she's going to try and f- funnel her anger and aggression in another way. Right, right. I like it. Thank you. Very so cool. what have you got then? F- what have you got for your long term? All right. Well, six months later, Nomi is a wreck. She's strung out, addicted to drugs, and she's completely sponging off of Kyle. Kyle is still in love with her, but he doesn't know what to do. One day, he comes home to find Nomi in the bathtub, her wrists slit. He calls 911, and she's rushed to the hospital, where the doctors manage to save her life. When she comes to, she begins to cry, and then she says, Kyle, help me. Kyle wastes no time. He packs up their stuff, loads up the car, and as soon as she's healthy, he collects Nomi from the hospital. They hit the highway and head east. A few days later, he arrives at his family homestead, a large farm in Nebraska. His parents welcome him and Nomi instantly. They stay up all night, and Kyle and Nomi come clean with his parents, telling them everything about her past. Even though they're shocked, they are welcoming and forgiving people, and they welcome her into their home. Without the pressures of success and fame and drugs and city life, Nomi thrives on the farm, and her relationship with Kyle thrives as well. It isn't long before they get married. Years later, as Nomi and Kyle sit by the fire with their kids and their dogs, Nomi reflects how happy she was to have finally found her forever family. And that's my ending. Oh, that's a nice ending. Yeah, I kind of, I, you know, I like to sap it up a little bit, so yeah. I kind of went with the happy ending, but I, I was sort of, you know. It's good she came out, uh, came out of all that in a good way. Yeah, I kind of felt like the only way she was ever going to survive was if she got, like, compl- like, cold turkey from everything. You know, I think, like, going out on a farm where she's just completely removed from any bad influences and any other people and just, you know, kind of living salt of the earth, that's, like, the only way that she was going to make it out of her 20s. You know yeah, what I mean? Because yeah. she was kind oh, of a definitely. Wreck. <laughs> Yeah, she was heading down down a dark path. Yeah, well, clearly, as we saw in your ending, it doesn't, uh, yes, doesn't yes. get a lot lighter, so. Yeah. All right, well, that is Showgirls. Phil, do you have any uh, show trivia for us? Okay, the film swept the 16th annual Razzie Awards. For those who don't know, that's the awards for like the worst movies, performances and everything. Uh, but Paul Verhoeven turned up in person to accept, accept the Worst Director and Worst Picture Award, and he was the first director to ever do so. Oh, so good cool. for him for doing that. Yeah, good that. for him, exactly. Yeah. You've got to own your, your, your disasters. So Absolutely. Pamela Anderson, Angelina Jolie, Denise Richards, Charlize Theron and Jenny McCarthy all auditioned for the role of Nomi. 
Well, and none of them was good enough to get it, really? None yeah. of them could beat out Elizabeth Berkeley. I know, yeah. Hmm. Uh, Elizabeth Berkeley, she was only paid $100,000, though. Wow. I wonder if she got... But if she gets royalties, though, she's probably made mad bank off of that movie. Over yeah, I couldn't find for definite whether she did, though. It seemed to be because there, there was a thing that was saying one of the... Uh, the Blu-rays, it was, they wanted to do interview, but she said she wanted to get paid for it, and uh, they wouldn't, so she didn't do it. Hmm, interesting. So, yeah. Uh, as I said, it already made $100 million, though, from video rentals. And Cal McLaughlin denied rumours that he walked out of the premiere, and he said, I sat there and suffered for the whole two hours. <laughs> he, he said it's, it's when it started, he just sat there watching it, and there was a, he, he thought the first scene, he went, oh, that's a bad first scene. But no, it's going to improve, and he realised it didn't. Yeah, yeah, kind of like when I watched it, exactly. Very much yeah. a, a similar experience. Yeah, but it's a bit different when you were in the film. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, very good. Well, let's move on then to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, one of the defining action blockbusters of the 90s, I think. Yeah, yeah, and it's uh, there was a quite a, there was a couple of Robin Hood films at the time, wasn't there? So, But this one did well, and it had the, uh, over here in the UK, the Brian Adams, Everything I Do, I Do For You, was number one for what seemed like, decades i think over here too i believe it was the 14 weeks i think it was something yeah like it was that, probably something like that over here as well it was yeah. just stupid <laughs> yeah. but i enjoyed the film i must admit i i like it it's a lot of fun yeah. i i do yeah. i do think it and it kicked off the 90s i think quite nicely but it was alan rickman though didn't he made it yeah yeah for sure all right well why don't you take us through the events of that film although i think we all know the story of robin hood pretty well but go ahead and give us the breakdown yeah i'm going to skim it a bit but uh robin of loxley played by Kevin Costner. He escapes from Jerusalem during the Crusades, but he, is, he saves the life of a Moor called Azim, played by Morgan Freeman. Uh, Azim feels he owes a life debt to Robin for saving him, so travels with him back to England. When they get back, though, King Richard is away, and the Sheriff of Nottingham, played by Alan Rickman, rules with an iron fist. Robin's father, played by Brian Blessed, is killed by the Sheriff's man, and so Robin needs to seek help. He, uh, he meets up with Maid Marion, who is played by Elizabeth, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio, and they all end up with a band of outlaws in Sherwood Forest. And they steal from the rich and give to the poor, so all, all well and good from the legend. Uh, the sheriff and his forces assault the hideout in Sherwood Forest, capturing most of the outlaws. The sheriff proposes to Marion, saying he will spare the lives of the outlaws. Robin and the others who weren't captured attack the castle. Robin learns that Will Scarlet, who is played by, played by Christian Slater, is his illegitimate brother. And Robin ends up killing the sheriff. Azim saved Robin's life, therefore repaying the debt. And Robin and Marion marry when Richard, King Richard returns, played by Sean Connery. And that's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Very nicely done. Thank you. And it's, uh, yeah, as we said, it's, uh, I enjoyed the film. Yeah, just, it, I think they did it quite well. It just seemed to flow quite well. We've seen Robin Hood stories all the time, but they had, had a cracking cast. So, so, so what have you got them for your day after, Mike? Okay, well, with Robin and Marion happily married, Will Scarlet begins to feel like a third wheel, so he sets off on his own. A few years later, making his living as a thief with the alias of Flynn Rider, he meets a girl named Rapunzel, falls in love, and <laughs> discovers the magic of the frying pan, and lives happily ever after. I like, I like that. Thanks. Yeah, I kind of thought yeah. that was, you know, similar time yeah. period. I could tie the two of them together. Yeah, I could see that, yeah. Uh, with King Richard back and the Sheriff of Nottingham vanquished, life begins to return to normal in England. Robin's band of merry men goes their separate ways, as there's really no need to rob from the rich and give to the poor anymore. Azim and Robin agree that Azim's life debt to Robin is fulfilled, and Azim sets off to find his new path. Life is good for a while, until one day when Robin and Marion are traveling through Sherwood Forest to visit Flynn and Rapunzel. When a band of brigands attacks them and tries to rob them, Robin laughs at the irony and hands over their money. However, one of the brigands decides he wants to take Marion with them, and when Robin steps in to defend her, the man stabs him in the chest. 
The thieves panic and run off, and Robin dies in Marion's arms. And that's where we're going to leave it for now. Wow, that was just the day after. That's just the day after. My God, okay. <laughs> yeah, nothing like killing off your main character right in the opening, what? right? I didn't expect that. <laughs> well, you see, I like to keep you guessing, Phil. Yeah, I don't want to get stale or boring, man. Just because we're 50 episodes in doesn't mean I can't surprise people anymore, you know? Yeah, no, I like it. Okay. Thank you, thank you. All right, well, how about your day after? Okay, Robin and Marion enjoy their first night together as man and wife. The next day, they spend time together planning their life ahead. But Robin also spends time with Will. He's overjoyed he has a brother. There's still many things they need to talk about and deal with, but it's a start. Robin also talks to Azim. As the life debt has been paid, Azim has no ties except friendship. Azim explains that he will return home, but he'll stay a while longer. While they talk, they're approached by a cloaked figure. Initially wary, Robin and Azim relax when they see it as just an elderly man with a long white beard. Well met, Robin of Loxley, says the stranger. My name is Merlin. And England is in need of your services. <laughs> very nice. I like it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, it's my day after. What have you got for your immediate aftermath? All right. Well, as you may what recall. Happens now? What yeah. happens now? So as you may recall, uh, Robin died. Yeah. So immediate aftermath. Robin opens his eyes. He looks around and sees that he's in Sherwood Forest, or at least what appears to be Sherwood Forest. Everything has a whitish glow to it, and the forest is completely silent. There isn't even the sound of wildlife. Robin sits up and realizes that his wound has completely vanished. He wanders the forest for a while, and as he walks down the path, he comes across a cliff with a waterfall next to it. Sitting on a rock next to the waterfall is a man with pale white skin wearing a black shroud. Hello, Robin, the man says to him. Do you know where you are? I think I have a pretty good idea, Robin says. And do you know who I am? The man asks. Well, the scythe is kind of a giveaway, Robin replies. <laughs> the man... You're damn right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> The man called Death goes on to explain that Robin wasn't actually supposed to die yet, and that's why he's here instead of in heaven proper. When Robin asks why he doesn't just send him back, Death replies that to just send him back without any kind of challenge or trial would upset the natural order of things. What kind of challenge, Robin asks. Anything you want, Death replies. Robin smiles and says, an archery contest it is then. And that's my immediate aftermath. Oh, awesome. An archery contest with Death. Yeah, right? Yeah, could be pretty best of, pretty fun. Best of two out of three. Yeah, say, especially if they get William Sadler to play Death. Yeah. who in my head that's who I was picturing, of course. Yeah, as I yeah. was writing oh. this. So. <laughs> oh no, I like where that's going. That's very nice. Thank you. All right. Well, how about your immediate aftermath? Okay. Well, Robin doesn't believe that it is the actual Merlin from the the Legends of King Arthur, but something makes him listen to the man. Merlin explains how a great evil has been unleashed from deep below the ocean, from a place called Atlantis, and is heading towards England, seeking the power of Excalibur. Robin almost walks away, but Azim stops him and says he had heard old stories about Atlantis, an advanced civilization brought down by greed. Trusting his friend, Robin brings Merlin into his home. Merlin explains that Robin must convince King Richard to prepare for battle, while Robin puts together a small force to find Excalibur and protect it. It takes some doing, but Robin does convince Richard to ready his armies. Reports of ships not returning to port help with the tale. Robin, Azim, Marion, Will and a few others saddle Saddle up and head off to Cornwall with Merlin in search of Excalibur. I like how you're meshing all these legends together. You know, Robin Hood and Excalibur, you know, King Arthur Excalibur, and then and then Atlantis all together. That's that's really cool. Yeah, well, I was trying to think of all those kind of things from around about that time, and it just all seemed to fit yeah. in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the, uh, the budget for this movie would probably be a little prohibitive, but... That's the joys yeah, yeah. of working with the theater of the mind. People can yeah, we'll picture just, it just, for free. We'll just animate it all. Just animate there it. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, what have you got then for your long term? Let's... Let's see what happens with this game of death. All right. Well, in an instant, bows and arrows and a target appear. Robin picks up his bow, tries it out, and lets an arrow fly. 
It hits the bullseye dead center. Death picks up his own bow and arrow, lets fly, and sees his arrow pierce Robin's arrow and cleave it in half. Every shot Robin makes, Death does him one better. Turns out, Death is a bit of a petty bastard, and he doesn't like to lose. (laughs) 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 Uh, If you're listening, Death, (laughs) nothing personal. Yeah, Yeah, I love your work, Death. If I'm not in the next episode, you'll know why. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm afraid Mike couldn't be with us because Death truly is a petty bastard. (laughs) Right, exactly. Uh, Death also isn't afraid to cheat. Robin begins to realize that he isn't going to win, when suddenly there's the sound of a horse galloping at full speed. In a split second, the familiar sound of arrows flying through the sky fills the air, and Death finds three arrows buried in his chest. Marion rides up on a horse, throws her hand to Robin, and helps him up. Death is stunned. You can't kill Death, he mutters, and then collapses. You're right, Marion says. Don't worry, you'll be back. This is only temporary. Then she rides off with Robin in tow. Moments later, they wake up back in the living world, side by side, with Azim standing over them. The ceremony worked then, says Azim, as Robin and Marion sit up. Yes, Marion replies. Thank you. How does it feel to be rescued for a change, Marion says to Robin. Robin laughs, and the three of them set out to return Robin home to recuperate. And that's my after the ending. Oh, very nice. I like that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. I thought a little afterlife adventure. I thought it'd be fun, fun for Marion to, you know, made Marion to not be the the damsel yeah. distressed for a change and kind of come to Robin's rescue. I sort of like that idea of, yeah. you know, switching things up a little bit. So save him from the ultimate. Uh, yeah, right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Right, Marion. Now we know Marion's quite the badass. You can't mess with her. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, how about your long term? Then I want to see where we go with this epic fantasy mashup. Okay. Robin and the others had a long, arduous journey. An advanced force of Atlanteans crossed their path. It was a dangerous battle, especially as the Atlantean weaponry could throw burning beams of light. But Robin was victorious and started uh, messing around with the new weapons. He quite liked them. (laughs) Uh, The closer they got to the location of Excalibur, the stranger everything gets. Creatures from folklore begin appearing and strange lights can be seen in the night sky. Merlin spends time talking to some of the creatures. Building alliances, he explains to Robin. Then they make it to Excalibur, or at least the small lake in which legend says it was thrown. Merlin stands at the shore and waits. A beautiful woman appears from the water, and they talk for a while. She shakes hands, and then sinks back below the surface. We don't have much time, says Merlin. Some of the Atlanteans got through Richard's defences. Robin, Azim, Marion, the Merry Men, and various fairy tale creatures ready themselves to battle the Atlantean forces heading their way. And that's my long term. Alright, I like I like how it's open for yet another sequel. Yeah, let's just go big epic battle. Yeah, yeah. Peter yeah. Jackson style. Yeah, yeah, but with all, you know, whatever crazy creatures you want to have in there as well. Right, and right. Merlin, Merlin doing, you know, magic stuff. Yeah, very and ev- cool. And eventually King Arthur turns up at some point. There, so there that, you go. That, that could be like episode, you know, the third or fourth film. Right, I, you got a whole <laughs> franchise building here. I, I dig it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, probably couldn't be Kevin Costner anymore. Maybe he could play, uh, he probably could King Richard now. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Kevin so, Costner has done a great job of, of, you know, accepting inevitability and reinventing his career to go from being a leading man into now being one of the best supporting actors on the planet. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with you. I mean, he, uh, well, he was, he, he even did some lead roles because I saw him in that criminal, which it which wasn't was great, terrible. but he, it, yeah, but, but he still, he was really good at it. That was a different kind of a role for him. Right, right. 
this scumbag who just had no moral compass whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, it's not like he'll turn down leading roles, but I think yeah. he's really he's really just also recognized his value as a supporting player, whether it's in, you know, Man of Steel or the Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, which, I mean, yeah, he's the best yeah. part of both of those movies, or even, like, Hidden Figures, you know, he's he's just really... Of course, yeah, he was become, in that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's such a valuable... Every movie he's in where he plays a supporting role, he is, like, one of the best things about the film, and he elevates the movie, you know? So, I mean, I'm, I'm glad he's still getting leading roles also, but, you know, some actors will only continue to do leading roles. And you look at some of these guys like... You know, especially like action stars, you know, who who even guys yeah. like Steven Seagal. I mean, Steven Seagal is not a great actor, clearly. But think of how much better his career could have been if rather than doing all these direct-to-video crap action films every two months, he just went yeah. on and did like supporting roles in bigger action movies, you know, where he's not the lead character, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think Kevin Costner kind of figured that out. And that's why he remains, to me, one of the best actors working today because he's he didn't let his ego get the best of him and, and he'll do – you know, a great role, regardless of, of the size of it. Yeah, no, an excellent point. I mean, some of these actors have to, when, as they get older, they need to suck their ego in, don't they, and just, you know, go with go with meaty parts that are a bit smaller. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to see some guys like that who are just A-listers, you know, even like Stallone and Schwarzenegger, but, you know, other guys. I mean, like Kurt Russell's also doing a great job with that. You know, he'll take a good yeah, supporting yeah. role and, yeah. you know, and recognize the value of it, so. Yeah, but, I mean, what's... Uh... I think Nicolas Cage would benefit doing that because oh, for sure. it, he is a good actor when he's he's got the right role. Yeah, yeah, but he keeps doing all these direct-to-video movies yeah. also that come out every other week. Yeah. Oh, well. All right. Well, so, Phil, uh, tell us about your uh, Robin Hood Prince of Trivia. What do you got for us? Uh, okay. Alan Rickman turned down the role of the sheriff twice before being told that he could do basically what he wanted with his interpretation of the character. I think that worked out for the best. Yes, God bless he's him with that. the best part of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, most of the songs the characters sing or hum in the film are, actual, are actual real medieval melodies, huh. which is a nice little bit. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Depp turned down the role of Will Scarlet. Hmm. Uh, in a scene where Robin pulls up his horse before entering Sherwood Forest, Kevin Costner's horse half reared, and its neck came up so fast to hit Costner in the face, breaking his nose. Ooh. But he, he, uh, he just insisted to carry on wow. when they did the scene which is good. And it almost could have been a Princess Bride reunion because Carrie Elwes was offered the role of Robin Hood. He turned it down because he felt it was too contrived. But in the, a couple of years later, he did do Robin Hood, Men in Tights. Right, right. But Robin Robin Wright was the original pick for Marion, and Carrie Elwes and Robin Wright were in The Princess Bride as Buttercup and Wesley. Uh, she was the original pick for Marion, but she was pregnant with her first child and had to drop out. Huh, I did not know that. Mm. Very cool. Yeah, I don't know whether it would have worked better or not, or whether you'd just be thinking, oh, it's Princess Bride, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it might have been weird, I think, because Princess Bride mm. is such a popular movie, I think, to see them yeah. together in a medieval setting. I think, yeah. you know, seeing them together in a different kind of movie, in a modern setting, you wouldn't have that. But in a medieval setting, you'd be sort of like, you'd be like, what? Wait a second. Are yeah. we? Who's what now? You know. Yeah. Yeah, where's, you know, when's there going to be the big sword fight? <laughs> right, exactly. So, all right, well, there you go. So that's uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, as well as Showgirls. Those are our endings. Let's move on for now, then, into our 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 episodes. This week we are doing 2002. So, Phil, why don't you climb into your trusty old time machine there and take us back to just the beginning of the aughts, if you will. Yes, this, this time machine has taken us to many different years. But as you say, we're not going that far back this week, but... In 2002, the British Prime Minister was Tony Blair and the American President was George W. Bush. And here, well, over this side of the water, the euro was officially introduced as currency in the eurozone and it's still going in many countries. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II celebrated her Golden Jubilee 
which was 50 years on the throne. NASA's Mars Odyssey space probe began to map the surface of Mars. Uh, an object with the estimated di- diameter of 10 metres collided with Earth over the Mediterranean and detonated in midair. And there was also the Vitim event, which was a, saw a possible bolide, which is a very bright meteor. Uh, this occurred in uh, Kutch Oblast in Russia, and they reckon it hit the ground with a an estimated force of 4.5 kilotons. So it's a bit like the Tunguska event, but not as powerful. So a few uh, bizarre meteors hit Earth in 2002. We also had the first direct electronic communication experiment between the nervous systems of two humans. That took place here in the UK. Hmm. Uh, and President Bush signed the Homeland Security Act into law, establishing the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, we also saw the film debuts of Kevin Hart and Kevin James. Make of that what you will. <laughs> uh, but we did see the deaths of Peggy Lee, Astrid Lundgren, Waylon Jennings, Chuck Jones, Dudley Moore, Billy Wilder, Robert Yorick, Thor Heyerdahl, Linda Lovelace, Rod Steiger, John Entwistle, Rosemary Clooney, John Gotti, James Coburn, Ted Dem, John Thor, and Spike Milligan. Okay, there you go. 2002, a very eventful yes. year. An interesting year for movies, too. Yes, yes. Yeah, some, I mean, lots of big movies, but uh, and lots that I enjoyed, but not none of them which sort of made me go, wow. Yeah, this definitely wasn't one of those years where it was like, oh my gosh, so many movies I love. Well, I can't pick my number one. Or, the, you know, there's some, yeah. some years where you're like, man, I, you know, some of my all time favorite movies came out this year. And there's years like this where it's like, oh, I enjoyed some of these films. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's basically, it'd be like, it's like a decent Blu ray collection or a decent, you know, list on a streaming service. But, uh, right. Nothing. Yeah, just ones you just put on, really. And, yes. Spoiler yeah. alert, when we get to our 100th episode retrospective, probably none of these films are going to make the cut of my top 10 films of all time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could well be it, yeah. Yeah. Okay, then, well, let's get started on what uh, what we've really sold could be an interesting list, really. Uh what is your number 10? All right. Well, you know what I liked? The one thing I did like about this year was there's a lot of big budget franchise sequels, and I, I didn't like very many of them at all. So very few of them appear on my list. But what that means is I got to throw in some some more unconventional picks. And I always like the chance to sort of teach people about movies that maybe they haven't seen. And I think number 10 is one of them. And it is Spirit, Stallion of the Cimarron. Which oh, is, I never, well, yeah, I yeah, never saw it. It's yeah. an animated film. It stars Matt Damon as a horse, and it has songs by Brian Adams, who obviously I'm a big fan of. And, you know, it's one of those movies that it's a traditional animated, not CGI. I didn't really expect much out of it when I watched it, and it came out, and I was like, oh, yeah, I'll see. I'll, you know, I'll watch it on video and see what it's all about. And I actually really liked it. It's got a big sense of adventure to it. Uh, it really got a heart to it, a lot of emotion. I definitely remember crying a few times when I watched it. You know, and it's it's... <laughs> It's 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 more than just a horse like running around eating grass. Like he gets involved with like the U.S. military, but he wants to be free, and there's all this stuff going on. And so it's just I, I think it's a really cool little film. I don't know that it's one of the all time greats, but it's a movie that I enjoy that I don't think a lot of people have seen. So it's worth checking out if you haven't. Okay, very good. I think there's a there might be a new there's a show animated show based on that on Netflix, I'm sure, or something. Yeah, I think that's actually accurate, which is weird to kind of go back to it. It wasn't a big hit, but maybe yeah. they realize it's a better film than people think, like I like I seem to think. Okay, I'll have to check it out, because I always remember it coming out, but never really never really bothered with it. But okay, but not a good pick. My number 10 is a film by, written, directed, and starring Steve Odekirk, and it is Kung Pao, Enter the Fist. Wow. And this one, it's, I always, it, it's, not a, it's not a great movie, but it did make me laugh, because what he did, he took... He took a 1976 martial arts film called Tiger and Crane Fist uh, and redubbed it, but also shot scenes involving himself and inserted them into this film. 
and it's just he just turned it into this comedy thing you find out that one of his friends the uh, the sensei says that he, he trained him wrong because they didn't like him and it's just he ends up fighting all these guys and and picks up a couple of gophers ties the tails together and he's got gopher chucks and it's it's just bizarre he fights a cow you've probably seen gifs and things on the internet from it but it's uh it just made me laugh it's uh, woody allen it's not it's not a new thing because woody allen did something similar with what's up tiger lily taking a film chopping up and redubbing it but this one it's just stupid stupid fun yeah no that's fair I, I i honestly can't remember if i've seen it or if i just think i've seen it and i don't remember caring for it i'm, I'm not sure which but i uh oh I there's, think... there's there's lots not to like about it but it's just it does it does work all right well interesting pick i'm sure i'll uh i'll get around to it one of these days yeah it just it's uh it just stupid wants to watch if you've got a few beers as a friend right sometimes yeah, those are the best kinds ones. of movies oh yeah yeah so what have you got for your number nine? My number nine will come as much as a surprise to everyone else as it came to me, and that is Death to Smoochie, starring Robin Williams and Edward Norton. And Edward Norton plays a big purple dinosaur. Well, not really. Uh, he plays a, a children's TV character uh, named Smoochie, kind of a, a Barney ripoff, if you will. And I remember seeing the trailers for Death to Smoochie when the film came out, and I thought it looked like the absolute worst movie I had ever seen in my entire yeah, life. Yeah, me too. That's why I've never seen it. Oh, man, it looks terrible. I mean, it is really one of the worst trailers ever. And then you watch it, and you realize it's actually a really smart satire of network television and children's television, and it's a really funny black comedy. And I'm telling you, I was more surprised than anybody, because I really, I actually think I grudge-watched it, you know, which is something <laughs> I don't, I don't really do anymore, but at the time I was like, I'm going to watch this movie because I'm going to hate it. You know what yeah. I mean? And um, it turned I out... I can't wait to hate this thing. Yeah, that's kind of what it was, you know? Like, I really was just like, I'm going to watch this movie because it's going to be the worst movie ever, and I can tell people it's the worst movie ever. And it's really not. It's a very smart, very funny film. It's a, it's a good satire. It really nails a lot of things about just the corporate television world, and I really like it. I think it's a very underappreciated movie. Don't watch the trailer for it. If you're, th- think- if you're sitting there thinking, oh, Death to Smoochie, I haven't seen that. And then you're thinking, oh, I'm online. I'll check out the trailer. Don't because the trailer will make you hate it. But go straight yeah. to the movie and, and give it a try. And I think you'll see it's actually a lot better than people think it is. Okay, yeah, because the trailer did put me off and then I forgot all about the film. Oh, yeah, me too. I get you. I get you. But it's, it's surprisingly oh, okay. good. Oh, cool. I'll have to add that to the list then. Okay, well, my number nine is uh, a surprise for me. It's a Disney animated movie. What? It's a... Uh, uh, Lilo and Stitch. Okay. Because I, I just, I like Alien. So I just like. I thought I felt this one was a bit different from uh, lots of other Disney ones because because uh, Stitch is. I felt he was quite different to uh, normal Disney things because he was, he's basically a, a vicious alien killer, but uh, a little girl in Hawaii calms him down and he becomes good friends and it's it's quite funny and I love the character design of of Lilo Stitch all the other aliens and everything else. And the fact it was on Hawaii was a slightly different vibe to it all. And it just a uh, bit action packed as well. You got space battles and big alien war ships and lots of Disney films. So that's a bit too cloyingly sentimental and nice and everything. But this one just had a different vibe to it. I felt ironically, I think maybe because of that, it did not make my list, which I know is a surprise yeah, yeah, yeah. because yeah. usually Disney movies do make my list. And I, I like Lilo and Stitch, but it's not, it's not one of my favorites. Yeah. Well, my number eight is a film that uh, will much like Disney films. This won't be a surprise because these are always on my list and it is die another day 
starring Pierce Brosnan as James Bond 007. Yeah. And I always like this film. I know it has some real dodgy moments. I know that. The invisible car and <laughs> him like surfing on the ice are oh, really that, that's terrible. Oh, surfing, but Jesus. I know. They're, yeah. Those moments are not great. But overall, I really liked the film. I think it, I like the way they took a darker tone with it, with having him be in this like Korean prison for like a year, sort of being tortured and coming out and being a little bit darker, a little bit more on edge. Oh, yeah, because they, they, they think he's, uh, they're not sure whether he's been turned, do they, at the, original, at the start? Right, of the right, film. exactly. So I, I like I liked that bit of it. Yeah, well. the, the non-CGI parts of the film are really quite good. There's some really great action scenes. And I always just really enjoyed Pierce Brosnan as as, as uh, James Bond. So this is a film that I really enjoyed. It is it is sort of a product of the, of the you know, the early 2000s. It's a little too heavily reliant on the special effects. But I, yeah. I love me some James Bond. And, and as a good popcorn flick goes, uh, this is one that I, I do enjoy. No, it's, it's a good choice. It's not my, it didn't make my list because it did feel like it was a film of two separate parts. I mean, they had the dark opening I've, and, you know, they weren't sure and it was like dodgy goings on and things like that. But then it did have the cheesiness that just didn't kind of gel quite as well as other Bond films. I think if they uh, sort of maybe had a few more passes over the script, it could have, it could have been a little bit darker and it would have been a bit, a lot more interesting, I think. Right. Sure. Can't argue yeah. with that. Yeah. My number eight is a, a Mel Gibson film, one that I thought he directed, but he didn't. It was directed by Randall Wallace, but Gibson stars in it. And it is We Were Soldiers. And it's uh, it's basically set during the Vietnam War and looks at the Battle of Le Drang in November 14th, 1965. And it's another Vietnam film, but it's uh, it just it's very raw and it shows the results of this fight and what Napalm does and you know the terrible damage both sides did to each other. Uh, but it has these great performances by everybody involved. Uh, like uh, Sam Elliott, uh, Greg Kinnear, Barry Pepper, and Mel Gibson, obviously. And but it just it brings it brings back the horror of war a bit more. That some some other Vietnam films sort of I won't say glossed over, but it sort of got lost. Uh, and he came back, and it just I just thought it was it was so well done, and it, uh, it just stuck stuck with me ever since. Yeah, yeah, good. It's yeah. a it's a good film. I haven't seen it yeah. probably since it came out, but so it didn't make, yeah. it didn't make my list. But it's a good pick. Yeah. All right, well, my number seven is also a Mel Gibson starring film. Ah. But it's a different one, and it is M. Night Shyamalan's Signs, which is one of those movies that I think gets a bad rap now. Yeah, yeah. Didn't back then. Like, when it came out, it was a massive hit. Everyone I know loved it, especially in the theaters. It's definitely one of those films that was way scarier in theaters than it was on video. Yeah, yeah. But I love the movie. I think it's great. Yes, I know the ending isn't as strong as it could be, but it's really... It, it's just a very good, tense film. It's got a lot of humor in it. You know, it is kind of scary and suspenseful. And, you know, in recent years, people are like, oh, signs, you know, the water, this and that, blah, whatever. But, you know, it's it's a good – it's just a good thriller. And I always loved sort of alien invasion stories. And I like this one sort of, you know, took a, a more personal approach to it. Yeah. And I think Mel Gibson's terrific in it. So it's a film I really like. And, and you know, I'm not – even though M. Night Shyamalan has made bad movies since then, I don't think that that means that his good movies aren't good anymore. I've, I've never really understood that mentality but it seems like people tend to do that a lot where they don't like his films anymore so then they start to bag on all of them even the good ones and I've always felt that Signs was one of his best yeah I I always I always enjoyed Signs it didn't quite it was in my short list didn't make the final list though but sure uh, I can understand that it was yeah as you say it was great I love the bit with Joaquin Phoenix he's looking at the TV yeah you know and then you, it's when you we first see what the creatures are oh yeah and I, I like there's a few theories where they're going where it's not actually aliens, it's actually demons, and it, the whole, it makes it sort of work better because then the water that's getting thrown on them is like holy water and ah, right. and all this stuff. But, right, right. Uh, but no, it's, I, I did like it. It was, a, it was a bit of a different role for Gibson as well. Yes, yes, for sure, yeah. exactly. But no, an excellent choice. Uh, my number seven, though, is 
a British horror film directed by Danny Boyle and written by Alex Garland. It is 28 Days Later. Uh, Killian Murphy and lots of other people. And it's got those, you know, it's... Sorry, it's not actually a zombie film, according to Danny Boyle. <laughs> right, it's the rage virus. The rage virus, but it's it was a, it was a fresh take on the whole zombie apocalypse. Especially you have those opening scenes of Killian Murphy walking around a deserted London, and he filmed that for real by getting police to close the roads for like ten minutes at a time. Yeah, it just it, it was so atmospheric. It was different. It had that uh, the gritty, you know, VHS. Well, not VHS. Like digital, you know, yeah, like handheld video. Yeah, yeah, it was like video like that. But it just and it's you know we had fast zombies. Was it one of the first ones to bring in the it, fast yeah, zombies? Yeah, it was one of the first ones, yeah. yeah. So purists didn't like that, but then Danny Boyle says, well, they're not zombies. And you go, well, okay. But right, uh, right. Lots, of, lots of memorable scenes and great performances. Yeah, frightening and powerful. Yeah, I think absolutely. is a good way to describe it, yeah. But that's that's my number seven. Great choice. My number six is very similar to that. It is 28 Days Later. Hey! So <laughs> so similar, it's the same movie. Um, and well, it, it, if yours is number six, does that make it 27 Days Later? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I remember about that movie, besides that, just that it's great, I agree with everything you said, was I went to see it. Um, I had a weird work schedule at the time, so I went to see it on like a Friday afternoon you know, like a like a three o'clock showing. And so yeah. for the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie where he's all alone, I was the only person in the theater. Oh, that's Really creepy, actually. And it, it definitely made, gave me a sense of like, what's going to happen when I get out of here? Now, somebody came in late. A couple came in like 10, 15 minutes into the film and they sat down in front of me. But, when they walked in, did they sort of stumble and groan? <laughs> no, but I did kind of give them a side eye. Yeah. Um, but the, it, it was definitely a really one of those times when you're watching a movie and, and the, the atmosphere of where you're at was just you know permeated the film and it was a very creepy moment so uh, but I, I love the film I love Danny Boyle in general and uh, it's a it's a great film whether it's a zombie movie or not yeah good pick and that's my number six excellent well my number six is another sci-fi film it's Equilibrium directed by Kurt Wimmer or Wimmer and starring Christian Bale Emily Watson and Tay Diggs and Sean Bean does he live or does he die uh, but it's uh, set in 2072 where after uh, there's been a world war or something and uh, society has taken this drug, Prosium 2, and it basically dulls down, pushes down all emotions. So society has become this this mass who, of people who don't question authority and they don't they don't look at art, they don't read books, and they don't think for themselves basically. And there's this you know, clerics who go played you know Christian Bale who's sort of like the policeman. They go around and they kill people who have got paintings and stuff, and they burn whatever they find books. And we follow Christian Bale as he sort of wakes up from this nightmare. But it, it introduced us to Gun Fu with some great, great action scenes where Christian Bale is surrounded and then the lights go out and you just, he's doing like martial arts and shooting people at the same time and just lots of good action films. It's uh, the story wasn't anything new, but I just liked the style and it was uh, a lot, it owed a lot to The Matrix, obviously, but it just had a great style and Christian Bale did a great performance. Yeah, I really like Equilibrium, actually. Uh, I think the main reason it's not on my list is because I forgot to put it on there. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it, it, would, it would have made my list. I had it on my short list and then somehow when I was narrowing it down, I just sort of accidentally left it off. I think it would have been in my top 10 for sure. So I'm going to count that as an oversight because it is a really cool film. Yeah. You know, like you said, derivative of The Matrix, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it's pretty darn neat to watch. Oh, yeah, yeah. All right, well, my number five is a movie called Infernal Affairs, starring Andy Lau and Tony Leung. Um, not Internal Affairs, Infernal Affairs. Mm -hmm. And it is the movie that was the basis for uh, Matt Damon and Leonardo DiCaprio's The Departed, which was directed by Martin Scorsese and is largely terrible, even though I know everyone loves it and it won Scorsese <laughs> his first Oscar. I don't yeah. like it at all. I think part of the reason I don't like it at all is because the, the movie it's based on, Infernal Affairs, 
Brothers is so much better. Uh, it is an Asian action film. It's very much the same plot, you know, an, an undercover, you know, cop, a bad cop, all that stuff. Um, but, man, the original is so intense and it's so cool. And it, it just had me gripped from start to finish. You know, it's subtitled and all that, but it doesn't matter. It's a really great film. So if you like The Departed and you want to see a better film, um, go watch Infernal Affairs and see what the original had to offer because it's ten times better than that stupid Scorsese flick. I know I'm pissing people off right now, but I don't care. <laughs> I, I'm bitter about that movie. No, it's uh, well, Infernal Affairs is a very good film. It didn't quite make my list, but uh, I can see why it made yours. But uh, there's a lot of love for The Departed, though. But it, and it's another good one to throw out, though. When people say, "Well, most remakes are rubbish," I know you'll never use that as an example. Yeah, Mike, no. But, uh, <laughs> but it is it is one of those ones where you know lots of people do like it, and it does have some great performances. But Infernal Affairs is be- the better film. Yes, I agree. Okay, well, my number five is one we went after the ending for back in episode thirty-eight, and it is Minority Report. Oh, okay. Good choice. Yeah. Uh, directed by Steve, Steven Spielberg and loosely based on the story by Philip K. Dick. Stars Tom Cruise and we've got the whole precogs. He works for a police force and they use psychics to say who's going to commit murder and then they go and arrest them before the murder's committed. And then Tom Cruise's character's name is put up and he goes on the run. And it's a twisty, turny, you know, he's on the run. Well, it's Tom Cruise and he does quite a bit of running, surprisingly, for these films. Hair, and he has to find out what's going on, why he's been framed, and all the while keep out of the way of people who can tell where he's going to be. Right, Lo- lots of great action. It looks it looks lovely as well because Steven Spielberg got lots of futurists to just you know try and decide what the future is going to look like. And uh, it's my number five. Very good choice. Didn't make my list. I-, I like Minority Report. It's one of those movies I always wanted to like more than I did. Yeah, I, yeah. I enjoy it, but I don't love it. Um, yeah, so yeah. it didn't make my list, but it is a good film, and I can certainly see why it's on yours. It's always makes surprise me though. It never, it never really see, feels like a, a Spielberg movie. Right, right, agreed, mm. agreed. Mm. It's definitely darker than his usual fare, I think. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, my number four is a film called Dog Soldiers. Probably one of the least seen movies on this list, unless you're into you know cult B movies. But uh, it is a werewolf movie directed by Neil Marshall, who also made. Another film, a horror film, one of my favorites called The Descent, which was my number one pick uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, yeah. um, you know, it's just a really great take on on werewolves. It's this this group of soldiers kind of stuck out in the middle of nowhere and they end up in this like cabin up against this group of werewolves. And it's super low budget, but they managed to pull it off. It's really intense and really scary and really fun. And I really love it. So <laughs> Dog Soldiers, if you haven't seen it, uh, Shout Factory put out a really nice deluxe edition blu-ray disc uh, last year which is really worth uh, tracking down but it's just a really fun movie and i i'm gonna go ahead and say we're at number four i'm still sneaking suspicion it's gonna show up on your list but we'll see what happens well my number four is dog soldier there you go (laughs) yeah yeah excellent Uh, oh what you said a a good low budget werewolf movie but no it was a great debut by neil marshall uh werewolf movies are so hard to pull off even with big budgets so the fact that he was able to make it so good and maybe the low budget helped it. I don't know, but it, it really does stand out in a in a very poor genre. I think. I think even when you see the the final form of the werewolf, it's a bit as with most werewolf films, it's a bit ropey, but it's still sort of it works. It works a lot better than because the way it's filmed and the way it cuts away and you you know the lighting and everything. But uh, the the build up is just brilliant. Yeah, yeah, very cool. All right, well, I'm glad we were in sync on that one. Oh yeah. Uh, my number three might be a departure from one on your list, though. It is a movie. This is probably the first and last time that a movie headlined by David Arquette is going to appear on one of my top ten lists. <laughs> and it okay. is Eight Legged Freaks. 
which oh, is oh cry yeah 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 a yeah. giant spider movie. Now I I love my B movies. I love my you know I've said a million times if you've got a giant you know animal of some sort, whether it's a crocodile or an anaconda or a shark or a spider or whatever, I'm gonna watch it because I just love those kinds of movies. But I really love Eight Legged Freaks. It has David Arquette and uh, Kari Wurr. and it's it's one of those movies that definitely has a sense of humor. It's a horror comedy, which is hard to pull off, but it works. And so it's it's funny and also scary. It's got some pretty cool CG effects of these giant spiders. And, and what I like is it's it's different kinds of spiders based on real spiders. So they have like the trap door spiders and all these different. They kind of attack in different ways. Um, and it, you know, there's a certain point in the movie. This is where my sadistic side comes out, where the spiders just start killing everybody. It doesn't matter who it is, women, children, you know men it's like they just go after everyone and you know a lot of times in these movies it's always like well you know the the you know the evil bank owner is the first one to get killed and the you know the pious mom is the last one she survives and, <laughs> and in this movie they just sort of kill off everyone and then they, they sort of let some of the crappy people live and the good people die and so they they play with the the conventions a little bit and I just think it's a really fun movie, but uh, it's a lot of fun I, I really enjoyed it if you haven't seen it if you've written it off because it's a giant spider movie with David Arquette. I totally understand, but give it a chance. It's it's a little better than you might think it is. Well, no, I I saw the film and uh, I've only seen it once, but really enjoy. It. I remember it being a lot of fun because yeah. I do like I do like any giant insect or spider movie. Yeah. It's uh, didn't make my list, but no, I actually I'll have to watch it again because yeah, I remember it being a lot of fun. It is. I enjoy it. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. My number three is a joint one uh, because I couldn't decide. Okay. Either way, but the, it's a couple of comic book movies. It's uh, Sam Raimi's Spider Man. And Guillermo del Toro's Blade Two. Uh, it was Spider-Man film wasn't quite as good as it, I was hoping it would have been, but it was enjoyable. It was Spider-Man, and you know they did get it, it got lots. It got more right than it got wrong. And also the fact when I saw it, I might have mentioned it ages ago on this, but I was in Peru at the time uh, with my dad. We were doing the Inca Trail, but we were in Lima a few days before that, and we ended up going to see Spider-Man in a cinema which was built into a cliff. It was like in a cave. Wow! So that was really cool, yeah. and that probably helped with it as well. I'm sure. But. Uh, I preferred Spider-Man 2, but the, the first one was a it was a great start. I, I just would have been good with, to have a bit more Spider-Man in it, but it was finally seeing the wall crawler on the big screen was great. And then we have uh, Blade 2, Wesley Snipes, which is sort of, you know, Iron Man got the Marvel Cinematic Universe going, but I think it was the Blade film that sort of showed that these comic book movies could quite work. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, and... I mean, because I love the first Blade film and the second one just built on that and you had these new, creepier vampires played, well, you know, Luke Goss played one of them and we have Ron Perlman as another vampire. Yeah, I like, I like the fact it was it was Blade had to join up with these, you know, this team of ninja vampires to take out these super vampires and uh, also Norman Reedus was in it as the tech guy helping Blade, but it's I, I I thought Wesley Snipes was brilliant as Blade and I, I love the action. I love the whole, you know, mythology they were setting up with the different vampires and the way it all worked but uh, that's my number three spider-man and blade 2 good choice i neither of those made my list actually i've never been a big fan of sam raimi's spider-man trilogy except for the mm. second one and um yeah i love guillermo guillermo de toro but the blade 2 is always my least favorite film of his and i think it's my least favorite blade movie i i, I realize it did a lot of cool stuff because it's del toro but for some reason it never yeah. quite worked for me i think the over-reliance on cgi sort of worked against it a little bit it's definitely yeah yeah some, yeah some matrix 2 moments where it's like oh that's why is blade made entirely out of cg right now it's just you know, I, I don't know. It always left kind of a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. Uh, I do. I've I've been meaning to get back to Blade Two for a while though, because you know it came out before I really knew Del Toro's work. So now I want to sort of go back and watch it again and, and see if I appreciate it more. So we're into our top two now, aren't we? All right. Well, my number two is a kids' film actually, and it's not Disney. It is Ice Age. 
And, um, you know, I, the Ice Age movies have really gone downhill since the first one came out. And I didn't even love the first one that much after, when it came out, to be honest with you. But one of those films that I worked at a video store for a few years and went right when it came out on video and I played it over and over and over again because we could only play kids' films on the, you know, on the videos that were – you know, the video TVs that were in the store for people to watch. Yeah. yeah. And after watching it like a hundred times or so, I, I developed a real affinity for the film. I love the three main characters. Yeah. The original one, I, I really do kind of have a special place for. It's it's just a, a really fun film. It's got some great moments. I think John Leguizamo is hysterical. And it's, I don't know, it's one of those movies that I can put on and watch. I've seen it a million times. I never get tired of it. So kind of ends up at my number two. Yeah, that's a good pick. And I do know yeah, the first one was most enjoyable, but it's uh, all been downhill since then. Yeah, for sure. Okay, my number two, though, is uh, The Bourne Identity, which saw Robert Ludlum's novel uh, adapted for the big screen with great effect, and it stars Matt Damon as Jason Bourne. And at some point, somebody in an office somewhere else is going to go, oh, my God, that's Jason Bourne. (laughs) Exactly. Which I think has been in every single Bourne film. Uh, Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and I'm sure people have said it to uh, Matt Damon, and he's, he's, you know, he he always comes across as a nice guy. He probably goes, oh, yeah, I've never heard that before. (laughs) Right. Uh, but uh, we've all seen it. It just gave it just gave like an action the action movie a bit of a the kick it needed. It uh, it just that it was it was a good story and also that you know the fight scenes were short and brutal and you could see what was going on until and then they messed all that up with the Bourne supremacy onwards where it was all you know shaky cam and jeez but, <laughs> but enough of that. But the the Bourne identity I thought was like a, a pretty much perfect little action movie. Matt Damon does some great speeches explaining why he's so cool. Yeah, yeah. In the Bond Identity. Yeah, good film. Yeah, that's my number two. Very cool. Didn't make my list, actually. I like it very much, um, but I've, I've always had more of a like relationship than a love relationship with the Jason Bourne movies, so... But yeah, I yeah, can dig fair it. enough. All right. Well, my number one is the other Steven Spielberg movie from 2002, and it is Catch Me If You Can, starring Tom Hanks and Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, it is Excellent. the story of Frank Abagnale Jr., who was basically a con man who impersonated people and got away with it for a really long time. What I remember most about the movie is when I watched it way back in 2002, it was the first movie that really made me into a fan of Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay. You know, after Titanic, there was this sort of big Leonardo DiCaprio backlash especially for men because you know all the women fell in love with him in Titanic and he was kind of this kid and he was kind of squeaky and you know everyone's like oh Leonardo DiCaprio he's a pretty boy and this and that and I I was probably a little guilty of that myself and then I watched this movie and I was like man what a fantastic performance like he is really a great actor and ever since then I've been a a big fan of his and I think nowadays I, I think he's recognized as one of our great actors but I think for a long time people were a little resistant to that but this was the movie that really turned that around for me and then of course you add in Tom Hanks you add in Spielberg. You know, it's a movie with a lot of great comedy and drama and yeah, action. Yeah. Uh, it just works on every level as far as I'm concerned. And I, I really, really love it. So that's my number one. Uh, an excellent choice. All right. Well, then I want to hear what your number one is. Okay. My number one is uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. Ah, very good. Peter Jackson, I probably my favorite one of the trilogy. He did. <laughs> of course it is, because uh, it's my least yeah. favorite of the trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, it's got the big, you know, the Battle of Helm's Deep. We see... Mary and Pippin meeting Treebeard, the ants. But you know, it's my, fa- my favorite one. It's, it's you know, it's, he had all, Peter Jackson still had people, you know, the orcs, it was actually people in costumes and makeup before, you know, the CGI travesty of what they did in The Hobbit. But well, I enjoyed The Hobbit films, but not to the extent of Lord of the Rings. But Yeah, I, I mean, I like the film, but it's funny, both the Lord of the Rings trilogy and The Hobbit trilogy, the second movies are my least favorite. I don't, I don't know what it is. Ah, okay, fair enough. Yeah. 
But that's uh, that was my number one for 2002. All right, very good. Yeah, so that will wrap up our top 10 films of 2002. A lot of fun movies to be found in there. Uh, that will also begin to wrap up this episode. So, Phil, why don't you go ahead and tell people what they can expect to hear from us next week. Okay, yes, next week we'll be looking at our top 10 favorite films of 1969 and going after the ending of Zombieland and LA Confidential, two films that I really enjoy. Uh, yes, actually, uh, films I enjoy quite a bit as well. All right, well, that is going to bring this episode to a close. As always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. I know, and Showgirl sort of ties into what's going on currently because it stars Kyle MacLachlan, who's in Twin Peaks, and the new season of that start will have started by the time this is played. So, you know, we're keeping our finger to the pulse. That's right, that's right. We are we are on the... the no. That's right. We are on the cutting edge of modernity. No, that's yeah. terrible. We're, <laughs> we're, on, we're on the cutting edge of cutting edges. That's right. We are on the cutting yeah. edge of cutting edges. Exactly. Yeah, that's why we're doing Showgirls and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What <laughs> doesn't get much more modern and hip and up to the minute than that now, does it? <laughs> so, yes. So but that's, uh, that's something I don't know what to say next. <laughs> she ditched the driver shortly after. She diffed the drop. That's a good start, isn't it? Can't even talk. <laughs> Crack it. And another one, a similar kind of thing, called the... Hold on, is that a U or a V? can't remember. What <laughs> Sorry about this. One second. Almost done. Listen, we've had we've had delays for way stupider things than not being able to read your own handwriting, so I, yeah, I have yeah. no reason to complain. What was it? Meats back on the menu, boys, I think is the best way to do it. What? That's what one of the orcs says. Oh. But after 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 watching Showgirls, while well, doing the Showgirls thing, it could take on a whole different meaning. <laughs> okay, on that note, <laughs> that, that's obvious. I was trying to come up with something a little bit more, you know, funny, mm. but I failed miserably. <laughs> <laughs> I will laugh heartily anyway. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>